morning. We're picking up uh, where we left off last week in the book of Ephesians, looking at the really the introduction that Paul has given to this church. If you want to turn there and be ready, we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 1. And I mentioned last week that the passage that we've actually broken apart into smaller chunks is actually one long running sentence, which is a doxology, which just means it's kind of, I'm overwhelmed and I can't stop talking about how great God is. And inside of it, we find some incredible truths that really cause us to just stop and marvel. And last week, part of what we were looking at, essentially, we were looking at our old self. And and prior to being saved, what a desperate state we were in. How desperate we were in need of a Savior. How desperate we needed someone to come and ransom us and to pay a debt that we would never be able to pay on our own. We looked at this incredible phrase that keeps repeating itself in Ephesians chapter 1, in Him, before Him, through Him. And we identified that all blessings, all spiritual blessings, come from God. But not just that, they come through God. That they're actually contained inside of who God is. This week, we come to verse 7. And we can't escape this incredible truth. If you would, let's pray and ask for God's guidance and wisdom as we begin to read this. But let's think about how incredible it is that these blessings are coming from God and continue to build on it and identifying who we were prior to being saved. I'll pray first. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time this morning and your word and the blessing that it is to study it with one another God, I pray that as we read, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the truths that are written in your law. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts and keep us humble before you, that we would uh, respond in a way and act in a way according to your word and your truth. In Jesus' heavenly name, I pray and ask all of these things. Amen. Read with me then from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in heaven and things on earth. I mentioned these first two words that we come up against, in Him. And the the little preacher inside of me would just be so upset if we didn't pause and look at just those two words for a moment. And so I want to begin there. These two words, in Him. Last week we talked about blessings, that they come from God and that they are actually found within God, that we cannot escape this truth. In Him. We have redemption. I don't know if that causes you to pause, but when I read those two words, it's easy to run by it, but if I look at it for any length of time, well, I'm kind of puzzled. What the heck does that mean? What does it mean in Him? Why do these words keep repeating themselves? 
Well, we find somewhat of a description and explanation of what it means to be in Christ and what can be found in Christ in Galatians. And, you know, I try to share with you my biblical interpretation rules. You know, the Bible cannot mean what it never meant. And you have to understand a text within its proper context. A text without a context is a pretext. And I say those things with frequency, hopefully, so that whenever you leave, you remember them whenever you're studying the Bible on your own. I'll give you another one that I hope is standing out after being here for a year or so. We have to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And, and so we find this weird phrase in him. We can look at Galatians for somewhat of an explanation. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. And so what we find is kind of this picture that whenever a Christian is saved for the first time, there's a baptism that takes place and and that baptism actually envelops them. It actually conceals them. To be saved means that we are in Christ. If we're not saved, we're outside of Christ. Let's keep working. What does it mean to be in Christ then? If I have to understand what this means to be in or outside of Christ, being saved or not saved, I have to understand what this means. What does it mean to be in Christ? Christ. You see, we understand through studying the Bible that whenever we're saved for the first time, Christians don't wake up the next morning and become perfect beings. We're not perfect. In fact, I don't think there's anyone here this morning that's not perfect, except my wife. She's lovely. I know somewhere hidden there's flaws there too. There's no Christian that is perfect. And, and, you know, while there is truth to being able to say that whenever a Christian is saved for the first time, that they are free from the bondage of sin and they are able to begin living a life of holiness and righteousness, we're able to begin um, pursuing God and even being able to resist sin in our lives. Well, that's an important truth. But realize that our salvation doesn't come about through this power of being able to resist sin. It doesn't matter if you're a sinner for a few days and then you're saved, and then even after you were saved, if you lived a perfect life, you realize that our good deeds will still not be the merits that get us into heaven. There's no amount of good deeds that will ever be able to cover up a lifetime of sin and depravity. It's not enough good that we can do in our life to overcome What put us in a desperate state to begin with? We know this to be true because, well, we weren't sinners because we had sinned. We sinned because we were sinners. We were all born sinners. And this is the incredible truth. Because the Bible tells us that God is just. And this presents a major problem. It wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be just if God were simply able to excuse or overlook or some kind of put outside of his mind 
all of the sin of our past and the real problem for Christians, even the sin in our lives after we've been saved. Well, this is a major problem. How then do these spiritual blessings come to us? And it comes back to this phrase, that we are in Him. Paul, in writing to the church of Colossae, says in Colossians 3.3, You have died and your life is hidden in Christ. You have died and your life is hidden in Christ. This, I think, is one of the most astonishing truths about how salvation works and how it takes place. Because what actually happens whenever a Christian is saved for the first time, it's just like putting on a Halloween costume. They're covered up. They're wrapped up. They're enveloped. So that when God's judgment looks down on them, He doesn't see a life of sin. He doesn't see the life that has passed away. Instead, He only sees the righteousness of a perfect Savior. It's put completely out of his mind. We are hidden inside of Christ. What an incredible thought. I marvel at this and it astounds me. And I mentioned this illustration of a Halloween costume and maybe I should say that that kind of falls apart rather quickly because the problem is whenever you dress up for Halloween or whatever it is, you're only putting on a facade. You're not actually becoming whoever you've become. But when we put on Christ, when a Christian puts on Christ, well, that's not just a facade. When there's real salvation, something else happens. Something even bigger happens. There's that actual change, that resistance to sin, the ability to overcome this. And and, and we begin to see that this phrase that we are in Christ, what makes it so marvelous is it's found also in the Bible. In Colossians 1.27, we read that we are in Christ. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. And I emphasized it, I was pretty excited. Not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us. We're not putting on a facade or a costume. But there's real change taking place whenever a Christian is genuinely saved. This whole picture of putting on Christ or being in Christ, it's like an exchange that takes place. It's like, you know, I don't condone the use of credit cards. I think they're a dangerous financial tool. But if you had one that had quite a balance on it and you could trade it with somebody who had not so much of a balance, maybe none... That's what salvation is. I took my charge card and I traded it for Jesus' charge card that was completely paid off. The debt still had to be paid. But now he's going to pay it for me. This exchange that takes place. That's what makes God just. And what's so incredible about it is all it takes is our identity. You think about that word self-identity, and it comes up a lot today. People are using it, and I think some people are maybe being a little fanatical about it. But you realize salvation is as simple as identifying with Christ. 
What makes salvation work is as simple as saying, I'm identified with Christ. Because the Bible promises us that if we would do that, that Christ would identify with us so that we will be in Him and He will be in us. Well, that's enough about those first two words. Let's try to build some traction as we move through this passage this morning. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. Spurgeon made an observation here. He said, observe, it's not redemption through His power. It is through His blood. It is not redemption through His love. It is through His blood. And we've talked about this some this morning and already began to discuss the problem that presents itself whenever we say that God would even make it possible to save a sinner such as you or a sinner such as I. Well, if He's a just God, He can't overlook things. He can't just move past things. There's a debt, and it has to be paid. The good news for us is that that debt was paid. And uh, as we begin to look at that, of course we know that it was on the cross that Jesus paid the debt that we owed. Three gospel records account Jesus' last words from the cross saying, It is finished. It is finished. I might pause and ask, What was finished? You might say, well, maybe Jesus' earthly ministry was finished. He's dead. Well, that's not true. He was resurrected three days later. His ministry keeps on. His kingdom, He still reigns in heaven, holding all things together through His Word. Can't be that. What was finished then? Well, it had to be the payment that a payment had been paid in full for every act of rebellion, past, present, and into the future, for everyone and anyone who would place their faith in Christ. Redemption. Salvation's story, or the picture of who we are in our old self to our new self, relies 100% that a payment has been made. God hasn't simply loved us and forgotten. Well, that's not love. God hasn't simply excused a sin nature born inside of us. He's covered it up. He's hidden it. And He's concealed it. And He's placed it as far away as possible that we'll never return to it. That there won't be memory of it. That He won't remember it. And He won't hold it against us. Sometimes there's difficulty whenever we have to go to a friend and apologize or ask for forgiveness for something because we know in the back of our mind, even though I've, I'm contrite, I'm genuinely contrite, and I'm trying to, to, to make reconciliation, whatever this situation is, I know in the back of my mind that they're not going to forget what I'm asking for forgiveness. They won't forget it. Our relationship's going to be strained. That's not the case with God. There is no strain in the relationship. 
because that trespass is completely hidden. We read on that this redemption through the blood takes place according to the purpose of His will. And it's done according to the riches of His glorious grace. Jesus' sacrifice is done according to the riches of His glorious grace. His immeasurable grace. And I want to emphasize that this morning, that this grace is no small thing. It's immaculate and it's overwhelming. God's grace is overwhelming. And I I don't know how to put into words how big this is. But I heard an illustration that I think helps. When we spend time pondering how immeasurable God's grace is, and, and notice that in our passage this morning that it's described according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. I mean, think about it. When you give somebody a gift, you normally give them the best gift that you can possibly give them. How great would it be to keep the gifts coming after you gave them a great gift? To really lavish them. This is what God's done with His grace. And, and, and here's the, the illustration that I, that I heard of that I, I think will help. When we really spend time to ponder how big God's grace is, it is comparable to a snowstorm. Because when it snows, you walk outside, there's no one that says, well, I think I'll just go start my car and drive to work. You're overwhelmed. It's dazzling and it's bright. There's no escaping it or denying it. I mean, even from the windows, the, the house is brighter because the sun's refracting off of that white. God's grace is the same. It envelops everything. It covers everything up. It is astonishing to look at what He has done for us. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the story of the hymn, Love of God, and if you are, I'm going to remind you of it. And if you're not, I want to tell it to you. Because the last verse in the song, I think, really comes out to begin to tell us what the love of God looks like. How big it is, how much His grace is, how immeasurable it is, and how it's like a snowstorm that wraps everything up. That can't be denied. See, the, the hymn was written by Frederick Lehman. He was a California businessman that had lost everything through business reverses. He was forced to spend his working hours in manual labor working in Pasadena, packing house, packing oranges and lemons into wooden crates, which probably isn't the best environment to write a love song, but it's the environment that God chose. Mr. Lehman was a Christian, and he rejoiced in his salvation. He was so moved by a Sunday evening sermon on the love of God that he could hardly sleep. The next morning, the thrill of the previous evening had not left him. As he drove to the packing house, the makings of a song began to come together in his head with God's love as the theme. Upon arriving home, he hurried to his old upright piano and began arranging the words and composing a melody to fit them. He soon had finished two stanzas and the melody to go along with them. But now what? In those days, a song had to have at least three stanzas to be considered complete. Isn't that a far cry from songs today that only need three words? 
He tried and he tried to come up with a third stanza, but to no avail was he able to. It was then that he remembered a poem someone had given him some time before. And hunting around, he found the poem printed on a card which he had used as a bookmark. As Mr. Lehman read the words, his heart was thrilled by the adequate picture of God's love that they had conveyed. He then noticed this writing on the bottom of this card. These words were found written on a cell wall in a prison some 200 years ago. It is not known why the prisoner was incarcerated. Neither is it known if the words were original or if he had heard them somewhere or had decided to put them in a place where he could be reminded of the greatness of God's love. Whatever the circumstances, he wrote them on a wall of his prison cell. In due time, he died, and the men who had the job of repainting his cell were impressed by the words. Before their paintbrushes had obliterated them, one of the men jotted them down, and thus they were preserved. Layman went to the piano and began to voice the words with the melody he had just written, and they were a perfect fit. It was a miracle. The song was published, and it remains today. The original third stanza was written in Hebrew around the year 1000 by a Jewish rabbi. Didn't know anything of the Messiah. God, knowing that Laman was going to write a song, also realized that Laman would have trouble writing a third stanza, and so he chose this rabbi, who though not accepting Christ as the Messiah, did possess the skills to graphically paint a picture of God's love in words. He would preserve these words, and then hundreds of years later, he would have them translated by this prisoner into a language that did not yet exist, namely English. And to think, he did it in the exact meter to fit layman's melody. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. You see from this pulpit, I'll never be able to do justice just how big God's grace is. No matter how hard I try, there is no book that, can, can, that could contain the whole of God's love. After all, we talked about this last week. He loved you before He even made the world. He loved you before your parents loved you, before you were a thought. He knew you. He counted the hairs on your head and He formed you with an unformed substance in your mother's womb, knitting you together. What a thought. What a thought. 
And he did all of this according to his purpose. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's a phrase in there's a phrase at the end of verse 8 that has uh, caused some Bible interpreters some difficulty. And if I'm honest with you, this passage in Ephesians, it's difficult to map out. I like to do sentence diagrams because I'm a nerd. Um, Ephesians 1.3 through Ephesians 1.12, it's one long sentence. And uh, if you try sentence diagramming that, it just goes on and on and on, and it's tried to talk, difficult to figure out what each of these phrases are. But there's a phrase here uh, that, uh, that has kind of two possible interpretations that are difficult, but here it is. Which he, we'll start in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and here's a phrase, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. In all wisdom and insight... Now, the reason that's difficult is are we talking about God's wisdom and insight that he decided to do this, or are we talking about something else? I would argue we're probably talking about something else. Um, And and here's why. God's all-knowing. His insight is all-inclusive. That's already established. It's in all wisdom that His grace has been poured out on us. That we're able to begin seeing how big this picture is. We're able to start wrapping our heads around what it would mean if the entire sky were a love letter from God. And it actually contained the wholeness and the completeness of this immeasurable love. Well, more likely... This wisdom is an understanding of just that. See, the same phrase is used by Paul again in Colossians when he's writing the church in Colossae. He writes in the introduction there, we continually ask God, and this is the same word in Greek, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. So again, Paul writing uses kind of the the same phrase, the same word, and here it describes very evidently that you and that I would have the wisdom, that we would have this insight that comes from grace. And so that's the case that we find here, I think, as well in Ephesians. In all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. This great mystery. We find, too, in the letter to Colossians, this reference to this great mystery. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I think Paul does a 
better job with the appositive phrase of giving us kind of an explanation of what this dang thing is. He's referencing a mystery and he doesn't tell me what it is. It's like reading a riddle book without any answers in the back. It's no fun at all. The mystery is Christ in us and the hope that we have in glory. Because God's purpose, come back to Ephesians, is a plan for the fullness of time. That means the completion of time, when all time has become complete. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. According to His purpose, He's given us this wisdom. Michelle and I were talking this week, and she told me of somebody close to us um, that had recently experienced a loss, and uh, they had said, I'm just struggling with my faith. I went and spoke to the spiritual leader, and they said, well, you know, You just have to trust that everything has happened according to God's will. Nothing happens outside of God's will. And you should take comfort in that. You know, by the way, that's a terrible thing to say to somebody who's experiencing a loss. The truth of the matter is there's no words that could ever take away what it feels like to lose anything. There's nothing that could ever take away the pain Emptiness, hollowness, whole routines in our life have been thrown off. And every day a reminder that we've experienced a loss. It brings me no comfort to know that it was in God's will that terrible things have happened. And I'm sorry to say that. But there is great comfort in this amazing grace that has been lavished out before us with a purpose to bring all things to unity with one another. I made a lot of cross-references this morning, and so the margins of your Bible, if you write down cross-references as you listen, I know some people do that, or you're taking notes, you might be burnt out, might be run out of room, Bear with me, I'd like to look at one more passage that I think gives us an explanation of this unity, this hope that is in us. And I'd actually like you to turn there with me, if you wouldn't mind jumping over to Romans chapter 8. Because I think this gives us a picture of this hope that is in us, this, this great mystery that's evident for the, for the Gentiles, these things that we have to hold on to, this grace that God has lavished on us and all wisdom making known to us this amazing mystery. What is this purpose that he had? Paul writes, Romans 8, starting in verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation 
waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The sufferings and the struggles in general, everything that we would describe as life today is not worth comparing to what glory is going to be like. I mean, think about all the descriptions that we have of heaven. I can't wait to get to heaven. There will be no more hunger. And that means Bubba will never cry again. It's not even a good compare. It's not even worth comparing to heaven, that description. That's how great heaven's going to be. Well, I can't wait to get to heaven. There will be no more sickness. It's not a good comparison either. There's nothing in our current life that is worth comparing to the glorious riches that wait for us in heaven. And, and this is what's so astounding about this passage is we find a description that there is certainly suffering. And in fact, this reference for creation has been waiting with eager longing for the revealings of sons because creation was subjected to futility. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when man first fell. I said that we sin not because we're sinners, but we are sinners. I'm sorry, backwards. I said that we are sinners we sin because we are sinners. That's what I'm trying to say. We sin because we are sinners. We've all been born sinners. We were all born depraved, and as a result, we're sinners. Going all the way back to that, that subjection to futility, the groanings that are going on there, everything that is in that picture doesn't even compare to the hope that creation will itself be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And still, even here, if I come back to that picture of somebody going through struggles and suffering and actually going through something, I can find the argument, well, why did God even bother? If he knew that we were going to have to go through all of this, this, this trial and the suffering and everything that goes on in life, why did he create me? Because he loves me? This doesn't feel like love. Spoiler alert. And, and this might be some uh, supposition on my part. God did whatever he did. Because what he's going to do is better than anything we could possibly imagine. I can imagine a world where God did not tempt Adam and Eve. He didn't tempt them. But where God didn't even allow the ability for Adam and Eve to disobey him. It would have been easy to do. He's God. All he would have to do is not create them with will. Well, there'd be no initial sin. There'd be no fall. We'd all still be in the garden. There was something even better than that. And God gave us will for this reason, that we could get to know Him, that we could walk outside and see a snowstorm and be overwhelmed with how immeasurable His love is.
what Paul is writing to the Ephesian believers here. He, he, he's writing to them, and remember, this is in his introduction, and so he's like, here you are, and, and you've got a whole world around you, and everyone around you, they want to oppress you, and they're suffering, and I know that they're suffering. Shoot, you know what? Your neighbors, they would crucify you if they had the chance. But you need to know this. God has loved you before He ever made the world. He reached out to you and redeemed you in His Son. He's forgiven your sins, and He's put them far away from Him, no longer remembering them. And He's granted you wisdom and insight by the riches of His grace in order that you grasp, take grasp of something in the big picture. And then bring that to bear upon the individual details in your life. How are you going to raise your children? What's going to happen in your future? What kind of decision are you going to make now? All of these questions are answered in Christ. Because we look forward to a day when sufferings cease and sorrows die and every longing is satisfied. If you can take hold of what is ultimate, you can deal with what is immediate in the light of what is ultimate. If you focus only on what is immediate and leave off the reality of what is ultimate, you will never actually be able to deal with the issues that face you. Our encouragement this morning is that we would live in the bigger picture. It is a tremendous blessing and a tremendous gift to know that God has given us insight and wisdom into just how big His grace is. And while it might not be something we'll ever be able to write down and contain, it is something that we can experience and observe and spend time looking at. And it's worth our time to do that. Do you know how big God's grace is? Take a dive in it. Go exploring. 